Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Proverbs, starting in chapter 22, verse 17. Proverbs chapter 22, starting in verse 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. Have I not written for you thirty sayings of counsel and knowledge, to make you know what is right and true, that you may give a true answer to those who sent you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and rob of life those who rob them. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Be not one of those who give pledges, who put up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the good sense of your words. Do not move an ancient landmark or enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction and your ear to words of knowledge. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart too will be glad. My inmost being will exult when your lips speak what is right. Let not your heart envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord all the day. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. This section of the book of Proverbs is, is known as the, the 30 sayings of the wise. Uh, We've got, only got the first section of those sayings, but wisdom requires careful attention that we pay attention to what those who have gone before us have said. Indeed, the, twice in that reference, there's discussion of this, these ancient landmarks that your fathers have set. And sure, in one sense, that's referring to property boundaries, but it's also talking about a principle here of paying attention to the wisdom of those who have gone before you. In America, we tend to value youth over age, energy over experience, and there's something to be said for those ancient landmarks. Uh, Your grandmother understood a lot about life. She might not always be able to explain uh, all of why she did what she did, But much wisdom was passed on in the doing. And sometimes they might not have understood why they did it, 
but it's, it's just fascinating to me as I've learned about how to live in a house with lots of lead paint. Actually, if you just clean your house the way your grandmother did, you're fine. Because that's, they, they didn't necessarily know all the benefits of it. They just knew that, ah, we seem to be healthier when we do it this way. So they just did it that way. Not necessarily because they understood all the reasons, but un oftentimes there is great wisdom. And when you ask them why, they may not be able to explain it. Many good things don't, are done not because we understand why, just because we've done it this way and it seems to work. That's not a bad thing. The next verse connects to that. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, how do you become skillful in your work? Well, you need to learn from those who have gone before you. Uh, likewise, do not toil to acquire wealth. What's the purpose of our work? The wise man does not work for the purpose of acquiring wealth. The wise man works, as Paul will say, because he serves the Lord Christ. Wealth is transient. When your eye lights on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. But wisdom endures. Surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Psalm 52 is a nice segue for us, as it warns against boasting of evil. If, if, if you do not make God your refuge, if you trust in the abundance of your riches, as the psalmist says, you are actually seeking refuge in your own destruction. Because what is the pursuit of earthly wealth? Well, it winds up, be, pride goes before a fall, earthly, earthly wealth, earthly power invariably comes crashing down, taking refuge in your own destruction. Instead, trust in the steadfast love of God forever. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. There are some rather interesting and challenging things that I want to deal with in this passage. But before we get to those, I want to start with the really obvious thing. What Paul says to masters and slaves applies to all of us. Because all of us, when you look at how he describes what masters and slaves do, it's about superiors and inferiors in pretty much any walk of life. All of us, in one way or another, at some point, will be in charge of some project or situation. Most of you are in charge of something like that right now. Everyone, at some point, will be a master, in Paul's sense of the term. When you're in a position of authority, however great, however small, treat those under your care with justice and fairness. Remember that you also have a master in heaven, and he will judge you by the same standard you use. We sometimes think that we like bosses who let us, let us do whatever we want. The only problem is they also let everyone else do whatever they want, and eventually that's not very much fun. So to treat those under your care justly and fairly requires that you actually use justice and fairness, not let everyone do what's right in their own eyes, because, well, that never ends well. Because also, all of us, at some other point in our lives, will be bondservants. All of us will be in a position of subordination where we have to submit to those in authority over us. It's actually part of the brilliance of the U.S. Constitution is that everyone has to submit to someone. The president may have executive authority, but he's only free to execute the laws that Congress has passed under the scrutiny of the Supreme Court. Congress can pass laws, but they can't enforce them. The Supreme Court may say whatever they want to about the constitutionality of the law, but they can't actually do anything about it. There's a famous 19th century case that ended very badly because of that, but that's, that's the way the system's set up. Now, that's also true in our very smaller worlds. In my world, for instance, I may be pastor and father to my sons, but you know, with respect to computers and technology, I am Robert's inferior. When it comes to carpentry and construction, I am William's inferior. And as the inferior, I need to recognize and honor my superiors in their superiority, and then when they have a project, I, can, I may be helping them, but I'm the, they're telling me what to do because 
if I insist on, oh, I'm in charge here, <laughs> that's not going to end well. Because you are serving the Lord Christ. And that's Paul's point, that this is why, it, this is why I'm, gonna, I'm starting by saying all of this applies to all of us, and then we'll have to deal with the particulars. But the big picture is Jesus is king. He is Lord. He is Christ. He, he, so when you are in your work, and we'll have to talk about what work means, but remember that you're no longer who you once were. You are a servant of the Lord Jesus. You are working not for man, but for your king, King Jesus. Now, sometimes that way of saying it has been used as a club to you know, get people to, yeah, you better do what I tell you because Jesus is watching. Well, that's not the way Paul says it. What Paul says is that you are serving the Lord Christ. Your work is not merely for your earthly master. Your work your everyday ordinary labor, not just the stuff you do for pay. All of your work is about serving the kingdom of Christ. We have this idea that work is about a paycheck. But throughout all of human history, until the last couple hundred years, your work was what you did in order to live. Paychecks are a fairly recent phenomenon. Uh, your purpose in your daily labors is to advance the kingdom of Christ. But we do need to look at the particulars and try to figure out what Paul's doing here because he's speaking to masters and slaves. And that is a very different economic system than what we're used to. We think that it's easier to understand the commands to husbands and wives, fathers and children, because we use those same terms. But I say we think it's easier. But what I'm going to say today is now going to complicate everything I just said over the last few weeks about husbands, wives, parents and children because when Paul addresses masters and slaves, he's still talking about the household. So I'll admit, I, 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 made it, I, I made it easy on you for the last few weeks because I let you think that, oh, husbands and wives, parents and children, that's just about family relationships. They're not. For Paul, they're also economic relationships. Well, the word oikos means house, household. And so the household for Paul consists of a much larger range of people than just husbands, wives, parents, children. The household also includes, uh, he used the term bondservants here, but there's a, a variety of both free and unfree people that are going to be part of the household. The, the master-slave relation is still a household relation uh, because in the ancient world, the household is the basic economic unit. A household could include hundreds of slaves and other laborers. Actually, I mean, Glenn was talking about this in Sunday school when he talked about the Frankish kings and how they thought of their sort of, this is, the whole kingdom is my property, my household, and so they'll divide up the kingdom amongst their sons because that's their household, their property, their, that's the way people thought in the ancient world. So, in, in the Roman world, slaves were in, engaged in virtually every trade and profession. So, we, we think, sort of, we get, you, you got to sort of forget everything you ever knew about American slavery, because that's not the world of the Roman, the Roman way of doing things. Uh, 
you could be a slave in practically any profession. You could live hundreds of miles away from your master, and you're basically you're, you're sending him a check every. So you know, it's 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 a very different model of of economic relationships. Even if your master freed you, it was understood that you would continue to be part of his household. Freedmen were that was a term that was used to refer to those who had been slaves or their parents had been slaves. Uh, and freedmen frequently served as business agents for their former masters. The idea that you would go into business for yourself, oh, that's crazy talk. Who would ever do a thing like that? I mean, there, are, there are stories of, of, of Christian masters freeing their slaves and the slaves being like, you're crazy. No, there's better, there's better job security. That's, it's not, and again, it's nothing, I mean, don't, if, don't even think about American slavery. That's, it's, this is not racial slavery. This is, not, this is a world in which most of the population is not free to get a new job. And even if they were, how would you get one? All of the social networks are designed to. It's it's a very different it's a very different world than what we're used to. So how do we how do we even think about this and how do we translate this into our world? Uh, I'll just say up front, Paul is not saying that the master-slave relationship is sort of the biblical way of doing it. He doesn't get into the theoretical question. His concern is that those who are raised with Christ should live in the world they live in as those who belong to Jesus. And Paul, Paul is addressing a congregation where there are some masters and many slaves. And Paul wishes to instruct them on how to think about your life together as the people of God. The apostles don't, don't try to articulate a model of ideal economic life. They call Christians to live as citizens of heaven in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. So since you've been raised with Christ, your attitude toward your work must change. What is it that makes your work Christian? I have a friend who was a public school teacher, and if he, if he did evangelism at his work, he'd, he'd get fired. But... Some would, some would just say, oh, well, just be, be a good teacher. And if he, if he does a good job teaching English, uh, that's, that's, what, that's what it means to be a Christian teacher. Well, but what is it that makes his work Christian? Well, this is what Paul's doing in, in, in his discussion of do, it, do whatever you're doing, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In, Col- in Colossians 3, Paul is teaching us how our union with Christ transforms all of our relationships. You have died with Christ your old man is dead, snipped away through the circumcision of Christ. You have been raised with Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So that Paul can say in verse 9, you have put off the old man. You are no longer who you once were. You are no longer a slave to sin and death. You have been set free. You have been recreated according to the image of Jesus Christ. And so every time we sin, we deny who we are. Every time you let sin master you, you are denying the master who bought you. And now Paul is applying this teaching to your daily labor. Since you are a new creature in Christ, let your lives show forth his transforming power. So what are the implications of this new life in Christ for our life in the workplace? So let's, let's think about the workplace. Now, modern corporate Capitalism is a far cry from ancient Roman slavery. Uh, 
so we need to think about what, a, what the corporation is. I mean, most of you either have at some time in the past or are presently working for some sort of corporation. Uh, many of you actually are, you know, whether you're serving on a board, whether you're stockholders, pretty much all of us are connected to a corporation some way, shape, or form. Now, the corporation actually is modeled after the church. The, the history of the corporation was basically the, prior to the Middle Ages, land could be held by a, a household by, uh, or by the state. And the state was generally viewed as the king's household, like with the Franks. But during the Middle Ages, the church was recognized as a corporate entity. And the word corp, corpus, body, the, the church is a body. But who owns the property of the church or who manages the property of the church? Well, that was the bishop. And so the bishop was considered a corporation soul. They, they also had a, a problem with monasteries, because monasteries took these vows of poverty. So who's in charge of the land where the monks live? Well, the monastery is considered a corporation, and it's like it's a body, and the abbot would, and there'd be, it would be the, the sort of the one in charge, and there would be sort of they started developing sort of trustees in order to handle the everyday business of the monastery, so that uh, they could they could sort of handle relations between the monastery and neighboring farms. So bishops and monasteries were the original corporations in the European world. And then this gets translated over to the university. Ah, let's use the same model. The university works for this. And then they say, well, that worked well for that uh, because you have essentially, it gives you a limited legal liability. You're holding, holding property in trust for a body. And in the 16th century, they start applying this corporate principle in other ways. A corporate charter could be granted to a company that was believed to be for the public good. Uh, overseas trading companies were, the, were the, some of the first corporations in, in the business world. So a, a business corporation starts as we want to limit our risk. Just, just imagine being a... a you know, overseas trader, you're sending a ship. If that ship sinks, you're done for. Well, but if we pool together all of us who have, who have uh, ships, and then you know, if we uh, have a joint stock corporation, then we can, we can limit the, the risk. If one ship sinks, well, that's only you know, one-tenth of our, our fleet. Okay, we can survive that. So they start applying the principle of the church as body to now you have these secular corporations. Now, why do I give you a history lesson in the middle of a sermon? Because if you're going to understand how to put into practice what Paul is talking about, masters and slaves, you need to realize that the world you live in is, is a very different world than the one Paul's talking to. And how does what Paul's saying connect to what, where you live? Well, if, if you are a, in, in a position of management in a corporation, if you are a position in a position as a stockholder, if you are a board member, then you are in the position that Paul addresses as masters. And so you are, you are in a position of, of treating those under your care justly and fairly. And it's also important to say that in the same way that the corporation, because once they start doing this, they start realizing, wow, there's lots of benefits of this. And so they start allowing more and more companies and so it's until nowadays Everybody who starts a company, it's, it's an LLC, it's a, whatever. They, they start something up. Now you have all these business corporations. And, now, and 
part of the result of if you're going to allow... Because when Paul's talking, if you are... If, 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 for those of you who have, who have experience in corporations, imagine this. Prior to the business corporation, all of your business assets are also your personal assets. And so if, I mean, yeah, you start thinking about what, who's, whose personal asset is the University of Notre Dame? <laughs> or, you know, I, I realize that's, that's, that, but that, that's why they start allowing universities to be a charter. But imagine a hospital, a hospital. Oh, okay, that's going to be somebody's personal asset. This is why corporations, before the corporation, businesses don't get that big. Because you can't get that big. There's too much risk. The medieval bankers, who were some of the biggest businesses in the medieval world, those are all personal assets. And they've got, they're giving loans to kings in the contemporary language of millions and billions of dollars. And this is going to be, it's all on them. And so if, you've, if you want to start a branch of your bank in another city, who are you going to send to, to entrust your personal affairs with? Nobody, clo- I mean, you only ever see, it's, you're going to send your son, you're going to send your brother, you're going to, maybe a cousin, although that often ends badly. But this is, you're not doing that. So what, what this winds up doing is it allows, the corporation allows people who don't even know each other. I mean, most of you, if you have any sort of pension or anything like that, you are stockholders in, in corporate. I mean, you, probably have, you probably have no idea what companies you're owners of. Because that's all being... But you're joining together with people you've never met to run this corp- corporation. It's, and when you think about it that way, you're like, that sounds kind of crazy. I mean, it, it only works because we actually somehow trust each other on this. Um, this is also why economies collapse, because when you don't trust each other, it falls apart. But when you allow the wealthy to pool their resources into these corporations, it then also becomes necessary to allow labor to pool their resources in corporations, which we call unions. Because we saw at the end of the 19th and early 20th century what happens when, when capital can combine and labor can't, then labor gets oppressed. It's something... History, you know, the Proverbs talks about these sorts of things all the time. But that's where you, if you're going to allow one group to, to organize, then you need to allow others to organize as well. So this is where the, the, the most significant effect, effect of this is it, it transfers the center of economic activity from the household to this new thing called a corporation. So... This is where, when Paul is talking to masters and slaves, husbands and wives, parents and children, all of those are economic relationships. Today, the, the husband-wife still has, I mean, there's obviously some economic relation there, but, but it's, it's, a, it's a much more tenuous relation because today, uh, you know, oftentimes it may be the, you know, the husband goes to work at a corporation, the wife stays home with the kids, or they're both working in two different corporations it's very rare that they're working in the same one. But, and then the kids don't have any real connection to either. When Paul's talking, everybody in the household, husband, wife, parents, children, masters, slaves, are all engaged in the same economic project. They're all involved in the same business, you might say. So that's, that's the world that Paul's thinking of when he says this. And today, it's he has his life, she has her life, and never the twain shall meet. 
And that's, that's just become normal. Now, I'm, I mean, I'll admit, there's, there's part of me that's like, wow, I like that older, older way of doing things better. And in fact, I'm actually, I've tried, I'm in a position as a pastor where I can actually do some of that more than most of you can. But it's, at the same time, Paul's not saying, I mean, you, I mean obviously, it's worth noting when Paul is writing Colossians, he's also sending another letter, which we'll look at when we finish Colossians. It's Paul's letter to Philemon. It's sent at the same time, and Philemon is a slaveholder in Colossae, and uh, and he's Paul's writing to Philemon, sending back Onesimus, a runaway slave, and urging Philemon to perhaps even set him free. Uh, and so there's. It's, it's clear from the New Testament that Paul is not a big fan of slavery as an economic relation, but he's still telling people, here's how to live within the system that you live in. And that's where I would argue this is why my task as a preacher is to tell you, here's how to live in the situation where you live, the economic situation that you're in, not sort of, ah, we, have, we, we should come up with a new plan that makes it a perfect economic system. People have tried perfect economic systems before. They rarely work. But the corporation does provide all sorts of I mean, moral challenges. If you're an investor, you're now a part owner of this company and you're partly responsible for caring for those under your charge. Uh, how do you think about how to be a, a responsible investor? Uh, and Paul sets forth the principle uh, earlier in, in 1 Corinthians when he, he tells the Corinthians, you know, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. In other words, you know, the meat may have been sacrificed to idols. That doesn't matter. Your conscience is not bound by what someone else has done. And he goes on to say that if an unbeliever invites you over for dinner, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat for the sake of the one who told you and for conscience sake. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. In other words, you will not be guilty of idolatry because you ate meat sacrificed to idols, but don't join the religious practices of idolatry. And that's the context in which Paul will address uh, the Corinthians in Second Corinthians six, when he says, "Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Do not knowingly put yourself in a position where you will be joining in the sins of others." Uh, in fact, the, the, it's referring back to Deuteronomy twenty-two, which forbade yoking a donkey with an ox. And Paul says, "This is this this principle is is to be. You know, we think about this in terms of our economic relations." Oftentimes, don't be unequally yoked gets applied to marriage, which is fine because marriage is an economic relation. But it's important to recognize that Paul's central concern here is about the economic relations of life. Paul is saying that righteousness has no fellowship with lawlessness. And that's where we have to be really careful because in the modern corporation, it's a mixed body, yoking together believers and unbelievers. And that, now, this is not to say that Christians... Can, you know, can't be involved in corporations. It's rather saying that in the same way that, that slavery was not a good economic system, I would argue modern corporate capitalism is not a good economic system. There's lots of problems. There's lots of pitfalls. There's lots of dangers. But 
how do you live in the middle of a world where everybody does everything in a corporation? Well, think about it as, how do I live as a Christian? How does Paul address masters? Whether as a stockholder, as a board member, as a manager, you're, you're a master in Paul's language. So make sure that your servants are given what is just and fair, because God will hold you accountable for how you treat them. If you have been raised with Christ, then you must operate by the principles that Paul lays out here in Colossians 3. You must encourage to seek that corporate body to be kind and humble, not greedy and grasping. You can't, you can't say, oh, well, as a, you know, as a member of the corporation, I'll, pr- I'll pursue the greedy and grasping aims of the corporation, but as a Christian, I won't. No, as a Christian member of a corporation, you must encourage that corporation to be kind, humble, and to do that which is just and fair. So masters, stockholders, board members, those in management must be just and fair. In imitation of Christ, do not show partiality or favoritism. And being just and fair means, you know, don't just take the culture's standards, but take Christ's standard. American industry generally ignores this teaching as much as any other. It's not that any culture does really well at this, but many would say, oh, let the market decide what is just and fair. But if if the market is allowed to set wages, there are times when wages will go the wrong direction because the market doesn't care what is just and fair. But Paul says that masters must pay what is just and fair. And that's hard. I mean, many of you have experienced this. Our, our economic system is structured to reward greed and covetousness. It's not structured to provide stability for families and communities. So most masters are not interested in providing what is just and fair, but in providing as little as they need to in order to maintain their workforce. But how do we put the interests of our workers ahead of our own? That's actually a crucial part of thinking about what is just and fair. It's... It's not just how should I, it's not just looking at others and saying, oh, well, they're doing this, so I can do that too. But rather, how has Christ treated me? And that is what I'd seek to do in how I treat those under my care. Because this is Paul's second point to masters. Remember that you're a servant, so use your authority to serve rather than to dominate. Remember whose servant you are. Imitate your heavenly master who gives generously to his servants, praising them for the little good that we do, gently rebuking them for our many sins. You are to be like Christ in your relationship to your workers. But of course, many of you are also the employees of corporations. And there's always these interesting moments where you're sort of, you're both master and slave in the same situation. And that's also where our economic system is an oddball because you can actually choose where you work. If you don't like your current master, you can find another one or become your own boss by starting your own business. This is, this is not the way most of human history has functioned. Some have argued that the, the, because of the danger of being yoked together with unbelievers, the, the best thing is to start your own business and operate it with a household economy. And if you want to do that, that's fine. But remember that Paul called Colossian slaves to obey their masters wholeheartedly in spite of the numerous abuses of slavery in the Roman Empire. So in spite of the numerous abuses of modern corporate life, 
Christians are called to live within the modern corporate world. In one sense, it would be easier to go the reclusive route. It's much more difficult to live in the world without becoming of the world. But that's where Paul's additional note to Philemon reminds us that Philemon is to act like a Christian, not like a typical Roman slaveholder. As a Roman slaveholder, Philemon had the legal right to kill Onesimus for running away. Yet Paul calls on him to respond with love and forgiveness, indeed, perhaps even by setting Onesimus free. Philemon was called to be a slaveholder unlike other Roman slaveholders. And likewise, you are called to be stockholders, managers, and employees of American corporations unlike other American stockholders, managers, and employees. Because you're called, as Paul says, quoting from Isaiah and Samuel, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It means that you must have nothing to do with the covetousness and greed, which Paul calls idolatry, of the people around you. They are trying to climb the corporate ladder. All they care about is the bottom line. You can't think that way. If you would act as a Christian in your economic life, then you must live according to the principles that Paul has set forth in Colossians 3. Sure, it may mean you get run over by unscrupulous competitors, but Paul does not promise material prosperity for those who live according to the word of God. He promises that you will have life in Christ. But you must care for one another in such a way that those who do get trampled by the greed of this world are refreshed and restored by the mercy of the body of Christ. And so as subordinates, how should we act? Well, what does Paul say? Fear God rather than men. Who is your master? When you go to work, do you work because your boss tells you to? That's exactly what Paul refers to as eye service in verse 22, being people pleasers. Eye service means service which is given when your earthly master has his eye on you. So you, you do well when he's watching, but not so well when he's not. Who is your master? Whom do you fear? Are you more afraid of what your boss thinks of you or of what Jesus thinks of you? Paul commands us to live our lives under the eyes of Christ. And this is where, as you start to think about this, you start realizing Paul's ad admonishment here is not just to those who are working in a job in the business world. He's talking about those who are living in the household. This goes to everybody. This isn't just talking to sort of the people who go to work. He's talking to the people who are living in, this, in the household. Husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, slaves are all under this admonition. Because our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. Your life is now joined to the Christ so that all that he has has been given to you. Which means that God is as intimately concerned with the, the details of your life as he is with the life of his own son, Jesus Christ. And so we are to work throughout our lives in the fear of God, not in the fear of men. But then secondly, in verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. In other words, do what you are called to do, do it with integrity and satisfaction. Uh, when it, do it heartily could be translated, work from the soul. It may be a dead-end job, 
Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with looking for a new job. I mean, that's where you have, you have an advantage over the, the slaves that Paul's speaking to, and that if you don't like your master, you can trade him in for a new one. Nothing wrong with that. But in whatever work you are in, this is where God has called you to be, and so do your work as unto the Lord in whatever job you have. God has called you to work in that factory. God has called you to make that latte. Not your boss. Your everyday labor is pleasing to God when it is done from the soul. We would say done from the heart, but that's the same basic point. Work that is pleasing to God is is not just sort of evangelism. No, rather, everything we do is work for the Lord. God is pleased when I turn in all my assignments on time just to make my professors happy. No. What we do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus and it is to be done as to the Lord, not to men. Which brings us to the third implication for subordinates. Serve Christ because your inheritance comes from him. Yeah, it, there's nothing that you can do to increase your inheritance. All that is Christ's is yours. There's nothing more to get. It's not that you serve Christ in order to receive a reward, but rather because you know that it is from the Lord that you will receive your inheritance. Therefore, serve him. He starts with the statement of fact. You will receive the reward of the inheritance from Christ. That is why you serve him. Because of what God has done for you in Christ. Therefore, out of gratitude, verse 17, out of the peace of Christ that rules in your hearts, verse 15, because of Christ's own promises, serve him. What makes labor Christian? When Christ is at the center. When the gospel of our Lord Jesus has so gripped your heart and mind that you approach even the trivial aspects of your work as service to the King of Kings. It's the sort of thing that you, you see um, not just in... It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be easy to go to the, 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 the medieval cathedrals, but you even see it in modern crafts when, they, when, when you have these little out-of-the-way corners that nobody will ever see, and they do it right. Nobody was ever going to see that. But they do it right because that's what you do. You do your work as unto the Lord, not for the praise of men. Because those who work for the praise of men will not receive the praise of God. That's the final point that Paul makes to subordinates as a warning. Because those who do wrong will be repaid in kind. As he says, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And he has the same warning for the master. Remember, you have a master in heaven. And he will... He shows no partiality. When, when God judges, he looks at things fairly. Those who work for the praise of men may receive their praise here, but they will not receive the praise of God hereafter. Whose praise do you seek? Whose word matters to you? Whose voice is loudest in your ears whether in all of your work? And when I say your work, that's referring to everything you're doing for the six days of the week. All that labor is part of that. What, what is... What are we doing for God? How are we living before him? So let's pray. Lord, help us because we are forgetful and we think of our work being done at the end of the day and we can go on to our own things and we forget you. 
So help us to, to work heartily for you in all that we do, that we might love you and love one another in the way that we walk. For Jesus' sake. Amen.